following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Is this the man that is this is this man were if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt to be forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has, but whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thanks, Tash. All right, well, as we start out here, I want to ask you to picture the most awkward dinner party that you've ever had, or maybe we could just broaden it out to the most awkward social gathering that you've ever been a part of. Just picture it in your mind, try and remember it, try and just conjure up all those feelings of awkwardness that you were, that you were feeling, all that sense of embarrassment that you were feeling. Uh, I remember we had a time uh, quite a few years ago where Anna and I had a friend of ours round for dinner, and he brought his new girlfriend round, which we knew she was, she was coming round. So that was great. This was our opportunity to meet her. And so we had this nice chit-chat before dinner, and then not long before we sat down to the meal, my friend let us know that his girlfriend was a vegetarian. And Anna had just spent all this time making this beautiful chicken dish. And so he had not mentioned this in any previous conversation, hadn't thought it was important, hadn't bothered to tell us right up to dinner time, just thought he'd drop that bombshell. So Anna's scrambling around trying to figure something out and we all sit down to dinner and the couscous, which was just supposed to be the side dish, became her main dish. So she's eating couscous and the rest of us are enjoying the chicken. That was kind of our weird, awkward experience. You can probably think of something way worse than that. You've all had these kinds of experiences, you know, someone's said something or done something, something's gone wrong or something just hasn't worked and you've just wanted to crawl into a hole in the ground and disappear. You know those times. 
Well, I think this passage possibly takes the prize for the worst, most awkward dinner party ever. This is a shocker. And I want us to feel just how embarrassing this was and just how awkward this was because it really was an embarrassing occasion for all the guests at this dinner party. It takes place at the home of this guy named Simon. And he's a Pharisee and he invites Jesus round for dinner along with a bunch of other people. So, so Jesus is the guest of honour at his place, but there's a range of other people there. And I think even though Simon was, was a Pharisee and the Pharisees were a group in the Gospels, you know, they, had, they were quite antagonistic towards Jesus. They gave him a very hard time and often opposed him. But I think here, I think we can at least give Simon the benefit of the doubt here. It seems like he's genuine. It seems like he wants to learn from Jesus Seems like he wants to interact with Jesus and understand a little bit more of Jesus' teaching. So not all the Pharisees were completely opposed to Jesus. I mean, think of Nicodemus. You know, Simon might be a little bit more in that category. And so he has Jesus round to his home and the guests are there. And if you can picture the scene, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the Mediterranean. Uh, in that kind of climate, a lot of the time in, in nice homes, and Simon probably had a nice home, he's a Jewish leader. In, in nice homes, the dining area was often in a courtyard at kind of sort of alfresco dining or maybe in, in a room that, that had open walls to the outside. So you, you felt like you were kind of eating outdoors. And the table would be low to the ground and the guests would be reclining. That's what Luke tells us. They were reclining at the table. And that meant that they were sitting on the floor. So you'd sit on the floor in this kind of environment. You might have, you might have seen this or done this in Mediterranean context. And they're probably sitting on cushions on the floor and kind of leaning on their side. You know, it's like propping themselves up on their elbow, just kind of leaning over on their side, and that's, that's how they'd relax, that's how they'd eat, and, and that's how they'd talk. And sometimes, if you had a, a dignitary that was, that was present, if this was a special occasion, the host might invite members of the public to stand or sit around the outside of the courtyard to observe the social gathering that was going on. And it was kind of your way of seeing a celebrity, it's your way of kind of seeing this, this social occasion so you could say you'd been there. And this was boosting the honor of the host. And it was all about the honor in this kind of culture. And so that may have been what happened. You may have had the guests at, around the table, but you may have had these others around the outside of the room. And that possibly explains how this woman, who's at the center of the story, managed to get in. Because you'd have to ask, otherwise, how on earth did she even get access to the inside of the house? But here at a certain point... As this dinner is unfolding, this woman comes into the center of the scene. And she's not in the background anymore. She's coming right up to the table. And, and we're never told her name. The passage doesn't tell us her name. All it tells us is that she was a sinner. That's, that's her title. That's her label. She was a sinner. And that probably means she was a prostitute. That's probably code for prostitute. And so she was known. She was despised. As soon as she enters the room, people are looking at her. People are looking at each other, wondering how on earth did she get in here? Who's invited her? How come, this, how come Simon's allowed this woman to get in here? How has this happened? How is she possibly standing here? They knew her. They knew what she was about. This, this was a woman who would have been totally unclean and a total outcast. And yet here she is in the middle of this esteemed dinner party, starting to get really awkward. And she comes right up to Jesus and stands behind him. And remember, you think the way the guests were sitting, his feet would have been behind him. 
And so as she's standing there behind Jesus, she's just weeping. And tears just coming down her face. And they're falling onto Jesus' feet. And so his feet are getting wet with her tears. But Jesus doesn't pull away. He doesn't, doesn't pull back. Jesus is not awkward. He's not phased by this. He just allows this to happen. I'm sure everyone else was feeling awkward. Everyone else didn't know where to look. This was, this was crazy. But Jesus just sits there. And then it starts to get worse. This woman then bends down and she loosens her hair, which was completely inappropriate. In these days, you did not do this. This was a sign of total immodesty for a woman. But she loosened her hair. And then she starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And Simon is just dying on the inside. You know, I mean, you've got to feel it, you know, for all these Pharisees, all these very well-together people, you know, like she is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And then she keeps getting worse. Then she starts kissing his feet. And I mean, he might have been the son of God, but his feet would stink. These dirty, smelly feet. And she's kissing his feet and then sort of wiping his feet with her tears as she was doing this. And finally, she takes this bottle of perfume that she had brought with her, a bottle in an alabaster jar. And the word that Luke uses here for perfume, it tells us it was high-end. It was high-end stuff, not the normal olive oil that you would sort of use in these occasions. This was nice stuff. And she takes this jar of perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet and just anoints his feet. And now she's rubbing his feet with her hair and she's crying and she's kissing her feet and the perfume is all mingled in with her tears. And the scent of the perfume is wafting across the room. And you just imagine how these dinner guests felt. You know, just not knowing what, who's going to say something. Where is this going to end? How is she going to stop? Is it Simon's responsibility? They would have not known what to do. And I think Simon was probably at this point feeling not only embarrassed, he was angry. Like he was mad. Now, how dare this woman do what she's doing? This, this defiled woman who would have the audacity to come into this gathering that he has hosted and completely degrade herself and debase herself like this in front of Jesus, in front of the guest of honour. Does she have no shame? I mean, how dare she do this? Who does she think she is? And the problem with Simon, of course, is that he's thinking all this, but he's sitting next to Jesus. And Jesus knows what he's thinking. It's the problem when you have Jesus around for dinner. You've got to be careful what you think. Jesus knows that's what Simon's thinking. And so he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. <laughs> and Simon's trying to manage a smile, you know. Tell me, teacher, he said. He's still trying to keep up the decorum, you know. And so Jesus tells him this little parable. So a little mini parable. He says there were two people and they both owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 50 denarii, the other owed 500 denarii. Now, a denarius was about one day's wage for a casual worker. Okay, so one of these people owes a couple of months' income. The other one owes a couple of years' income. Huge debt, big debt. And Jesus says this, this money lender, this person they were indebted to, was a really gracious person, and he cancelled the debt of both. 
He just wiped the debt out. Now, Simon, who do you think is going to love him more? And Simon says, I suppose, you know, he's sort of begrudgingly, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. And Simon, I think, is starting to see, starting to wake up to the way Jesus is completely reframing this entire situation. He's starting to see Jesus as saying, Simon, you're the guy who owes the 50. Well, you think you do. You think you've been forgiven little, so you love little. This woman is the one who owes the 500. She knows she's been forgiven a lot, so she loves a lot. And then Jesus presses this point home to Simon. And this is, I think, where it possibly gets the most awkward for Simon because now Jesus is being direct with him and he talks to him about hospitality. And he compares the kind of hospitality that Simon has showed to, this, to, to Jesus with the kind of hospitality the woman has shown to Jesus. Now, in this kind of context, in a Middle Eastern context, there were three things that you would typically do when you had someone around your house for a dinner party. First, you would offer them some water for their feet. Because people wore open sandals and there were dusty roads and their feet were smelly and stinky. And so you would give them some water so they could wash their feet before they came inside. Secondly, you would greet them with a kiss, a kiss on the cheek. So just a kiss of, of welcome, welcoming them into their home. Thirdly, if they were a dignitary, if they were a VIP, you would put a little dollop of oil on their head as a sign of blessing and favor that, that they were in your house. And Jesus says to Simon, Simon, you haven't done any of those three things. You haven't even met the basic conventions of Middle Eastern hospitality. You haven't even done what is required of you. But look at this woman. Look at what she has done. From the time I've, I've come in here, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't even give me a kiss of welcome at the door. You didn't give me any water, but look at this woman. She's, she's wetting my feet with her tears, washing my feet with her tears. Simon, you didn't give me any oil for my head, but look at this woman. She's poured perfume over me. And I think Jesus is saying, Simon, you haven't even done the basics with hospitality, but this woman is showing incredible hospitality to me. She's just showing this extravagance of hospitality where she has given me this welcome that, that you have never and, and could never give. She has welcomed me in a way that you have totally failed to welcome me and to receive me. And then Jesus turns to this woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And aren't they the words she would have longed to hear? Isn't that what it was all about for her? I mean, she'd kind of anticipated that by just how adoring she was towards Jesus. But then she hears those words of freedom. She hears those words, that incredible debt that she had just been drowning in is finally lifted from her and that burden of guilt and shame is taken away. What a moment for that woman. And we know from the rest of the story that the other, the other dinner guests kept muttering under their breath and murmuring about what was going on and voicing their disapproval. But interestingly in the story, we don't know how Simon responded to that. Luke just doesn't resolve that. We wish we knew what happened to Simon. Did he, I mean, did he, did he show some contrition? Did he humble himself? Was his heart transformed? Did he keep just being embarrassed and angry and upset? How did, how did he respond? But I think Luke, the author, is being clever here. I think he's deliberately leaving that question open. We don't know how Simon responded because by not knowing, it draws us into the story. 
By not knowing, it leaves that question mark over how we're going to respond. You don't know how Simon responded, but you can decide how you're going to respond. You can decide how you're going to respond to Jesus. And I think this is the question as we look at the story is, well, well, where are we? I mean, where am I in that story? Who would you have been around that table? Where would you have been in that scene? I think a lot of the time we're like Simon. I I can see myself in Simon. I think a lot of Christians are like that, aren't we? We just have a very respectable relationship with Jesus. I can sort of imagine having Jesus around to our house, having a nice dinner with Jesus. Hopefully the kids are quiet. And we just have this nice, pleasant conversation. And we talk theology. And he resolves all of the intricate theological issues that I've always wondered about. And we have this sparkling conversation. I can imagine that. You know, I think for a lot of us, we sort of have this very respectable relationship with Jesus. We welcome him into our lives and we appreciate him and we value him and we like to have this kind of dialogue with him and we say respectable things about Jesus and we pray respectable prayers and we sing respectable songs and we have respectable Bible studies and, you know, we're just all very respectable Christians. And I think the whole time Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be respectable. I don't just want your respect. I want your love. I want to know if you love me like this woman loved me. I don't just want you to respect me. I don't just want you to honor me or worship me. I want to know if you love me deeply from your heart. Like, do you really love me? Not just with your head, but with your heart. Like, can you honestly imagine yourself doing what that woman did? Really, I mean, just think about that. Could you ever in a million years imagine yourself doing that? Or would you be the respectable one having the conversation with Jesus about the meaning of life? Could you imagine yourself being like that woman? Could you imagine yourself being that vulnerable? Being that intimate? Being that adoring of Jesus? I don't know. I mean, we struggle with this, but I think that's what Jesus is inviting us into. I think he's saying there's a different way of relating to me here than just this respectable Christianity that you've been practicing for so long. I want greater intimacy with you than that. He's saying, I want you to draw closer than that. He's saying, I don't want just your head. I want your heart. I want to know if you love me. And I think it starts by being able to see ourselves exactly where this woman was to see herself in her place. I mean, we can look down on her because she was a prostitute and we can think what an immoral person she is and I'm much better than that. But the reality is there's, there's no difference between us and her. Is there? Or if we think we, there is, then that, that's our first problem, right? The only difference between us and her is she knew her own brokenness. She was willing to own it. She was just willing to be open about that. Most of us aren't. We still either think we're the 50 denarii person or we just pretend that we are because we want to keep up appearances. The first step is just to simply acknowledge our own brokenness. To acknowledge we are the ones who have this unbelievable debt before God that we could never possibly in a million years repay. That we are just sinking in a debt of sin and a debt of shame and transgression before God. It is way, way, way over our heads and we are full of brokenness, shot through with sin and rotten to our core. I mean, she knew that about herself. Do we? 
And then to recognize that in spite of that debt, we have this incredibly gracious God who has come to us in Jesus and has completely canceled that debt, totally and fully. Didn't just say, let me restructure your debt. It didn't just say, let me give you some more favorable terms on that debt. Didn't just say, let me pay half of it and then you still pay half or let's get a good payment plan or whatever. He said, I'll just cancel it. It's just gone. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine that happening to you. Imagine your bank manager ringing you up and saying, I know you've got this $750,000 mortgage. I just want to cancel it. Just letting you know, just a courtesy call, canceling your debt. How do you feel towards that bank manager? You're going to start kissing his feet or her feet. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of situation that we are in when we have this relationship with God and yet so often we just take it for granted and we're pretty blasé about it. But we have been forgiven much. And I think when you can really acknowledge and appreciate the depth of God's forgiveness and just how massive this debt is that we've been freed from, it should do something to your heart, shouldn't it? I mean, should there not be something that happens in your heart? Some of you are just so unmoved by this. I can't understand it. When, when you really appreciate the depth of what God has done, it moves you. Not just in your head, but with your heart. Like it stirs something deeply in you, doesn't it? The one who has been forgiven much, loves much. And I'm not just talking about chasing emotions. Please don't hear. I'm not just talking, let's just be all emotional. Emotions are good and they are God-given. But this is simply about learning to love God with our hearts, not just our minds. I think a lot of Christians are good at loving God with their heads and having the right doctrine and having the right theology. But God is saying to us, I don't just want you to love me with your head. I mean, what does Scripture say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. There's a reason that heart is first in that list. Are we really loving Jesus with our hearts? It's a fundamental question. Are we really allowing him to stir our hearts? Do we really love Jesus? You know, I know for some of you that's difficult because you feel like, well, I'm, I'm just not really an emotional person and I don't really kind of, I'm just not wired that way. I know a lot of you men are struggling with that right now. And you're like, I just can't, you know, I can't connect to this. Look, I'm the least emotional person I know. And I'm still challenged by this. You know, I'm still challenged that God wants my heart, not just my mind. I think men, you know, don't just ignore this because, well, I'm a bloke and this doesn't apply to me. Look, I know men have hearts. I know men get passionate about things. I saw the Bledisloe Cup last weekend, you know. You, could, you look at the men singing the national anthem. You look at the men getting excited about the All Blacks. We know how to get excited. We know how to get passionate. I just wonder sometimes whether our loves and passions have become disordered along the way. Wouldn't it be amazing, guys, if we loved Jesus as much as we love sport or love Jesus as much as we love our families? Guys love their families, but do we love Jesus? Has he got a grip on your heart? Do you really love him, guys? So stop hiding behind the men aren't emotional and let's allow our hearts to be captured by the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Now, I know some, sometimes it feels like you want to be there, but you just can't get yourself there. 
You want to connect with where this woman's at. You want to engage your heart more. You just don't know where to start. I don't know how to feel that way. I don't feel that way. What am I supposed to do? I think one thing we can do is just look at what we call our devotional life. Right? Even that is a funny term in a way. It's, very, it's so evangelical. It's so packaged, you know, my devotional life. It's very ordered. But just think about that. What does your devotional life look like? Because we can teach our hearts to do this. It doesn't just happen. You're right. It's not just a switch. It's going to take time. It's going to take some habit formation. So what does your devotional life look like? What happens when you pray? How do you pray? You just sort of ask God for stuff you need? Come to him with a bit of a list. What does it look like? Have you spent time, will you spend time, just simply adoring God? Like, is that, is that something you could do? Just actually let God know what's on your heart. When you pray, could you think of your prayers being like the tears of that woman? Could you picture that as you pray, next time you pray? That as you pray, you're in the posture of that woman. Bending down before Jesus, washing his feet with your tears, wiping his feet with your hair. Could you think of your prayer being that adoring, that devoted, that worshipful, saying, thank you, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, that I am forgiven, that I'm freed, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, for that. Can you allow your heart to be stirred by that? Can you respond to God from your heart? Not just from your head. What about when you read the Bible? What happens when you read the Bible? Some of you read the Bible. Often when we read Scripture, if we read Scripture, we read it for information. And we want more Bible knowledge. And I want to get stuff into my head. And that's good. I mean, the Bible itself does call us to grow in the knowledge of God. I'm all for that. We want to increase that. The problem is it just stays in our head and we have a very transactional, informational approach to Scripture. Let me read you the words of one of the greatest Bible scholars in church history, Jonathan Edwards. He said this, No idea or attitude or theory or doctrine is of any value that does not inflame the heart and stir the affections in love and joy and fear of God. If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. Do you hear what he's saying? And that was a guy who knew how to use his brain, who knew the Bible better than any of us. But he's saying, what's the point in all of your good theology if it does nothing to your heart, if it just leaves your heart cold and empty and unmoved? What point is it? Theology, good theology, should always lead to doxology. That is worship of God. That's why Paul, when he gets to the end of Romans 11, after 11 chapters of dense theology, he just erupts into praise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wonders of the wisdom of God. I'm getting the wording wrong, but it's something like that. You know, he just, he just pours out of him. He just can't help himself. A friend of mine says it like he, at that point, Paul just puts down his pen and picks up his guitar. And he just, just flows into worship because what else can you do? That's where theology should lead you to worship and praise, not just filling up your head, but stirring your affections for Jesus. So what about not just reading the Bible, but meditating on Scripture? I mean, the Bible itself calls us to do that. Meditate on the Word of God. Read Psalm 1. And that means not just reading it and scanning it and processing it, but soaking your heart in the words you are reading and just letting it wash over you. 
and reading prayerfully and asking the Holy Spirit to press a word, a thought, an image on your heart and then responding to God from the depths of your soul. What about reading scripture that way rather than always reading it just to study it? We can read the Bible with our hearts as well. What are the other ways that connect your heart with the heart of God? What are the things that you do? What are the spaces that you go to? What are the places? What are the things? For me, it's music. I love music, love playing the piano. So for me, I know that's, that's not everyone. Not everyone's into worship music, but I love it. And so for me, that's a way that connects me. With, it connects my heart with the heart of God. I had a wonderful worship time the other night. The kids were in bed and Anna was out, and I just sat at the piano playing, uh, playing that song, Waymaker. And, just, and I was just lost in it. And just lost in worship. Now that doesn't always happen to me. It's not that every time I have all of these emotions, but I was just caught up in the wonder of worshiping God as the promise-keeping God. And that is something that connects my heart to the heart of God. What is it for you? Is it getting out in nature? Is it taking a long walk along a long beach and there you meet with God? Is it just being by yourself in solitude and silence? Is it reading a good book, maybe a Christian book that just reminds you of the goodness of God? Is it artwork? What is it? You know yourself well enough. What is it that will connect your heart with the heart of God? I want to encourage you to do that thing regularly. Like, don't see that as peripheral. Make space for it. Make space to get to that place, to engage in those practices. Put it in your diary. Prioritize that. It's at the heart of your life. It's at the heart of your spirituality. If your relationship with God is important to you, prioritize those things that will connect your heart to the heart of God. We can teach our hearts to love Jesus, but it takes that practice and it takes putting place things in our life that will draw us closer and closer to him. So I just leave you with that question this morning, which I think is, is the, the question that comes out of this passage to us. Very simple. Do you love Jesus? Like just please don't just move off that question because you think you already know. Just sit with it. Do you love Jesus? Like do you really love him? Do you love him? Not just do you revere him. Not just do you worship him. Or do you pray to him? Do you really, from your heart, love Jesus? Is your heart stirred by his love for you? Are you willing to see yourself in the place of this woman? Are you vulnerable enough to do that? To place yourself where she is and, and weep over your own brokenness as she wept? To see the weight of your sin, but then to see the weight of God's mercy? And allow yourself to receive all over again just that incredible offer of forgiveness. And hear the, hear the words of Jesus again, your sins are forgiven. Can you allow that to stir your heart? Can you allow that maybe to fan into flame? That fire that's kind of flickered and died? Can you allow that to stoke something in you? Maybe start to soften that heart that's gone a little bit cold for you. Can you allow God to stir your heart, to stir your passions, to stir your love so that you are drawn again to your first love who is Jesus? He doesn't just want your head. He wants your heart. May we know ourselves as those who have been forgiven much. And out of that, may we love much. 
Let's pray. Jesus, even as I'm talking this morning, I, I just have this desire to love you more, more than I do. We want to love you more, Jesus. God, our, our hearts are stirred and yet we just find ourselves saying, I, I want more. Jesus, I want to know more of your love. I want to know more of your grace and your mercy and I want my heart to be more stirred. I want to be more like that woman. Jesus, I thank you that you come to us with such kindness and such compassion that in our brokenness and weakness, even when we can't see our way forward, you just come to us and you just take us right where we are and you just say, follow me. And Jesus, I pray for every heart of every person in this room today that you would soften those hearts that are hard, that you would reach in and you would just stir affection where there is just a coldness there and where we've just become too much about our minds, I pray that you would open our hearts to love you and worship you. Change our hearts, we pray, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.